our minds, that we may think clearly and think rightly of what you would have us do. Take our bodies and use them to do your work and take our hearts and set them on fire. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Between the ages of three and 12, my family lived in Dallas, Texas. And in our neighborhood were several limestone creeks. And the city had the good sense to keep those creeks wild and overgrown so that children could play in them. Playing in those creeks is my earliest memory of my lifelong love for the natural world and communing with it. Forests, fields, streams, ponds, swamps, mountains, hills, and rocks. And so one day while I was exploring in one of those Dallas creeks, I saw this large fish come up from under a rock ledge. It was a three-foot-long alligator gar, a fish common to that area but unexpected in such a small stream. The gar is a very strange, prehistoric-looking fish and can grow to eight or ten feet in length. The gar is, in fact, prehistoric. A hundred million years they have lived here on planet Earth. What I remember, and of course I cannot trust what I remember when I was 10 years old, is that I told my close friend about this fish. His house was directly across the street from the creek. And we were to keep this a secret and enjoy going down to that now sacred pool of water, lie on our stomachs, and wait in suspense for the Leviathan to appear, to manifest himself in all of his glory from under the limestone ledge. But my friend told his older brother, and his older brother and his friends got a net, and they caught it, and they killed it. And what I recall is that they brought it out of the woods triumphantly, yelling and hooting like an Indian who had just scalped a cowboy or like an African tribesman who had just killed a lion. All of this imagery, of course, fueled by the movies that I watched back in the 1960s. Well, this sad story, whether historically accurate or not, lingers with me as a parable of what we now call ecological devastation. The human desire that must be deep within us to plunder and kill and destroy instead of to protect and preserve and cherish. Or even more negatively, that great lust and insanity that humans sometimes have to kill until destroyed or almost destroyed, like with the buffalo or the passenger pigeon or the Carolina parakeet. 
There are two somewhat divergent biblical views on the subject of human freedoms and responsibilities for the earth. One is the psalm that David read to you, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, or the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth belongs to God. We are the stewards. We are the caretakers. And it stands to reason, doesn't it, that all landlords want their property well cared for. Ideally, we want our property not just maintained, but improved. And we can all imagine, say, if we rented our house for a year while we lived abroad, and how pleasing it would be to come back to our home and find that the gutters have been kept clean and the leaves are raked and the grass is green and healthy and even some improvements have been made. The patio has been pressure washed and some shrubs have been planted. The bushes are neatly trimmed, better trimmed than when we left them and that they were actually able to grow some grass in places where we could not get it to grow. And if you think about it, it's not that hard. It's hardly a stretch of our imagination to imagine humans thinking of the earth this way and putting those thoughts to work, that God is our landlord and we are the responsible renters, the really good renters, the renters that every landlord wants. But now there's another verse also from the Psalms, 115, verse 16, that goes like this. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to us. The earth he has given to us. Now, this verse suggests that we are not just stewards of God's earth, but in fact, we are now the property owners. And we all know that old truth that in most cases, the owner takes better care of her property than the renter. And then there is this famous, often quoted Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over every living thing that moves upon the earth. It, it has often been pointed out and pointed out correctly that to subdue or to have dominion does not mean or imply permission to plunder, to damage, or to make worse. So think of subduing as weeding a garden. I mean, if you want to grow vegetables, you must subdue the weeds. You must have dominion over them. But even then, there remains the issue of how you will subdue the weeds or the insects or the deer or the groundhogs and whether that method of subduing comes with too much harm or not. The concept of humans as stewards or excellent caretakers is not really a new idea. 
Even our own John Calvin wrote these amazing words in the 1500s, and I quote, Let him who possesses a field so partake of its yearly fruits that he may not suffer the ground to be injured by his negligence, but let him endeavor to hand it down to posterity as he received it, or even better cultivated. Let everyone regard himself as the steward of God in all things which he possesses. 1500s, not a new idea. And at the same time, we should celebrate some of our successes, though I do caution that most of our successes with earth care have been in the category of proving or reversing earlier damage. I'll give you one good example. For 11 years, Katie and I lived in the Valley of Virginia, near the headwaters of the James River. And those of you who have driven to either the Homestead or the Greenbrier know that there is a very large paper mill in the town of Covington, Virginia. You may not know that the James River is formed in the little village of Iron Gate, where you pass through on 220 before you get to Covington, where the Jackson River and the Cowpasture River come together to form the mighty James. Well, for many years, this paper mill dumped toxic chemicals into the Jackson that then flowed into the James, and people remembered it as a time when the river was dead, when there were no fish to be caught, and it flowed an unnatural color. But now, perhaps even since the 1980s, the river has recovered, and it is today one of the finest smallmouth bass streams in the United States. The paper mill is still in production, but it is not polluting the rivers. And there have been many success stories like this. The recovery of the wild turkey in, eastern, uh, in the eastern United States, the return of the bald eagle that's not that uncommonly seen, the millions and millions of acres we now have of national parks and national forests and nature preserves, to name but a few. But I still think we need to pause And we need to wonder, why have there not been more improvements? For example, just one of many examples, we have known about the dangers of cutting the South American rainforests for, I don't know, at least 50 years, I'd say, at least 50 years. And yet we are told that the cutting actually escalated to record numbers just last year, in 2019. The culprit, of course, if I understand it right, is our desire to have more and at cheaper prices. See? We want to have more and we want it to be cheaper. We want to, for example, eat more beef and we want to pay less for it. And so the rainforests are cut down so that the cattle can pasture or to grow corn or soybeans or whatever 
to feed the cattle, to fatten them up so that they'll be big and fat before they're slaughtered. Here's another example that I lived through during my years in college and seminary. You remember in the late 70s, early 80s, the price of gasoline compared to wages was very high. And the car manufacturers started making all kinds of amazing cars like the Volkswagen Rabbit and others that would get 50 or more miles a gallon. But as soon as the price of gas went down, people started buying bigger and bigger cars that used a whole lot more fuel. And I think that proves, in general, though I know there are lots of exceptions, but doesn't that prove, in general, that we don't really care that much about the environment? We only care about the price. Now, I think we all agree that we all benefit from this economy where there is more, where there is bigger, and where there is cheaper. We like it. We celebrate it. And yet, I think we know that it is not good for the earth. It is really not good in any proper sense of the word good. It is certainly not good in any biblical or spiritual sense of the word good. I mean, think about the size of televisions today compared to just a few years ago. And when they break down, we just throw them out and get another one, don't we? Because that's the way the economy is set up for them. It's cheaper. It's quicker. It's more convenient. Just one of thousands of examples. We delight that there is more and that the things we want are cheap and that sometimes they're bigger and they're better. I'm no economist, you are well aware of that. I may have some of my facts wrong, I may have some of my analysis wrong, but it seems to me that this is our only solution, to go back to less, smaller, and maybe more expensive. We must somehow develop a spiritual discipline, a spiritual hunger or desire to live with less and maybe be prepared to pay more. To yearn for quality over quantity, to think smaller, to be content with less. How will we ever use less plastic or less paper or less styrofoam if we continue as we are now to buy more, to buy bigger, and to buy cheaper, and now delivered to our door by Amazon in packaging that uses, uses even more plastic and more paper and more styrofoam? Now, I know this overabundance is not new. I can give you a personal example. My children grew up in the 80s, and even though my salary at that time was quite low, we somehow bought them or had given to us many, many toys, too many toys. And I remember sometimes being so disgusted by all the stuff we had that I would do what I called the Amish sweep. 
My fantasy was that at least the Amish children surely had only a few toys, but they were beautiful and they were handmade and they were classic and they were enduring and they were elegant and they were not that cheap plastic stuff that I kept tripping over in my own house. And for the Amish sweep, I would gather up all the excess in big bags, yes, probably plastic bags, and throw them in the attic and leave out only what I considered the best toys, the most beautiful, tasteful toys, and feel for a moment the contentment of smaller and less and better. Now, you've all probably guessed how this ended. The children would howl for their junk, their tacky opulence, their plastic oriental bazaar. For the Amish sweep was for me. For them, it was barren, it was sad, it was boring. They were bereft, they were deprived. And I think that's where we are today. Anyone who dares suggest the wisdom of smaller, less, and God forbid, more expensive, let us prepare for the howling. But it is, alas, a spiritual issue, and I urge you to give it some thought. Just just give it some thought. As our hero Wendell Berry said it well, There are very, very few big solutions to big problems. There are mostly small decisions made one at a time in small ways day by day. Something worthy to consider for 2020. Blessings. Blessings.